All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervella. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up. Russia is threatening to widen the war on Ukraine into attacks on merchant shipping in the Black Sea. A major ship fire at Port Newark, New Jersey, was extinguished after four days. But what are the wider implications for the maritime world? And the Maritime Administration's management of U.S. shipping is under question. Sal Marcogliano of What the Ship and G-Captains John Conrad are with us to dive into these important issues. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The attack submarine USS Annapolis arrived at the South Korean Navy's Jeju Naval Base on July 24th. It was the second U.S. submarine visit to the Republic of Korea in a week, following the ballistic missile submarine USS Kentucky's port call at Busan from July 18th to 21st. North Korea continued to react to the visits by carrying out further missile launches into the seas around the Korean peninsula. The British carrier HMS Prince of Wales was at sea July 28th, carrying out full power trials after completing repairs to a damaged propeller shaft. The ship broke down last September and moved to BAE Systems Recife in Scotland last October. The repairs are estimated to have cost 20 million pounds. The large destroyer USS Zumwalt DDG-1000 left San Diego July 27th headed for Mississippi, but a maintenance issue caused the ship to reverse course and return to San Diego the following day for repairs. A Navy spokesman said it was expected the ship would resume the transit, quote, in the near future. The ship is headed to Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula for a major modernization and technology upgrade that includes installation of the conventional prompt strike weapon system intended to make the Zumwalt the first U.S. Navy warship to field a hypersonic weapon. Zumwalt is expected to remain at Ingalls at least into 2025 before returning to active service. After the Zumwalt, the Lyndon Johnson, DDG-1002, will undergo the upgrade, followed by the third ship in the class, the Michael Mansour, DDG-1001. In old ship news, a decommissioning ceremony was held July 21st in Keyport, Washington, for the Los Angeles-class attack submarine USS Chicago, SSN-721. Built at Newport News Shipbuilding, Chicago was commissioned in 1986 and was in service for 36 years, completing her final deployment in November of 2022. In new ship news, the Flight 2 Arleigh Burke-class destroyer, Harvey C. Barnum Jr., DDG-124, was christened July 29th at General Dynamics Bath Ironworks in Bath, Maine. The ship's namesake, a Marine Medal of Honor awardee of the Vietnam War was present at the ceremony. And Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro on July 27th announced that the expeditionary sea base ship ESB-8 will be named for Hector A. Cafarada Jr., a Medal of Honor recipient from the Korean War. ESB-8 currently is programmed to be the last of six such ships built at GD NASCO in San Diego. 
And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Okay. Today, we want to focus on several maritime events and issues that have not gotten a whole lot of attention, I think, anyway, outside the trade press. And we're excited to once again have two great guests. Sal Mercagliano is an associate professor of history at Campbell University. He hosts the weekly What the Ship videos on YouTube. John, John Conrad is the founder and editor of the G Captain website. Welcome back to the podcast, Sal and John. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right. I want to start with Ukraine. As has widely been reported, Russia has declared it will no longer allow commercial shipments of grain from Ukraine to pass through and out of the Black Sea. Even more, they've threatened that commercial ships in the Black Sea could be considered a military target. So there, this, this has an immense impact on multiple levels. Uh, Sal, I'd like to start with you. What, what are the chief impacts of this so far? Well, I mean, you have the UK announcing today that uh, Russian Corvette Sergei Katov is is on patrol between the Bosporus and Odessa, so a pretty uh, proactive move by the Russians. Uh, you know, the the Black Sea Grain Initiative was able to get 1,004 ships up into the Black Sea ports of of Ukraine, move about 33 million tons of grain out, and now with it it being suspended. You have two actions being done. One, Ukraine has announced a temporary maritime route where they were going to run ships up to Ukraine. They haven't done it yet, but they announced the opening of that route. At the same time, you have the Russians came, come out and announced that any ships running up into the Ukrainian ports are going to be deemed as carrying military cargo. Ukraine countered that by saying that any ships going to Russia are going to be deemed as carrying military cargo. I, I think we're at a real big inflection moment right now what happens next we're seeing that russia has shifted to start hitting the grain terminals not just in odessa but down along the co along the danube and that's right on the romanian border matter of fact a romanian ship was hit recently during these attacks and this is escalatory i mean we're seeing this escalate we don't envision right now a food shortage for example because right now food products are being produced at pretty good rates around the world the problem is what happens when the next inflection coming? What happens when the Rhine drops, which it is, the Panama Canal drops, which it is, and now all of a sudden you're not able to move food as efficiently, and now that 32 million tons that was coming out of Ukraine isn't, especially to a country like China that got over 7 million tons of that. And what you see is leaders like Admiral Fogo and Admiral Stravitas talking about what should be done. I, I, you know, I, I keep questioning the fact that we see the continued announcements by the Navy that we're going to reinforce the Persian Gulf to enforce freedom of navigation in the Persian Gulf. Same thing in the Taiwan Straits. Yet the Black Sea seems to be an area we don't want to talk about. And I don't think it, we're, we're talking about driving Burke-class destroyers up onto the Black Sea. But even putting some sort of attention up there, maybe a NATO minesweeping group, maybe observers, maybe some shore support, along there but it, it just seems like nato and ucom and the united states do are, are ceding the black sea to the russians i think that's a bad problem john i agree fully and i think uh you know that the naval piece of this has taken a black sea and your previous guest bj armstrong has talked about this uh a lot where there is a huge maritime component that's not being picked up by the politicians the media and press I would like to take that a step forward in saying that this is primarily a maritime war. If you rewind the clock a, a, a year before the invasion, when the Ever Given was stuck in the Suez Canal, Putin was very alarmed about that. And he came up with this 
I believe it was $16 billion project to expand the inner waterways of the uh, Russian continent in order to get uh, movement of supplies down through the Black Sea, but also connected to the Baltic because Putin does not think that the Western Mediterranean is a viable option because of all the NATO bases there. So if Suez is closed, he really feels boxed in. And this is the reason why he took over Crimea. And in order to get that choke point, the Kerch Strait is to Russia what New Orleans is to the United States. All the inland waterways connect down through there including the largest freshwater lake in the world, the Caspian Sea. So this grain initiative was officially declared over at the moment when the Kerch Strait Bridge was attacked. And people have to realize this is this was a limited time card that Putin could play because where is Ukraine fo focusing its attack on Bakhmut? They're trying to get back to Mariupol because once they control Mariupol, the artillery can control the traffic, all of the inland traffic, which is the majority of Russia's export economy, going down through all these rivers, the Sea of Azov and out to the Black Sea. So Russia needed at the beginning of this war, they needed the, the grain initiative just as much as Ukraine to keep that river flow traffic. And right now they have that area secure, but if they lose Bakhmut and if they lose Mariupol, they are gonna need that, that grain initiative put back in. So this is a huge maritime component. The problem here though, is that the media, the politicians, the European Union, everyone is focusing on the army war and they're not realizing the larger implications which is why Admiral Fogo, Admiral Stravitas, Sal and I, a bunch of others are asking for uh, you know, the Navy to step up and take a stronger role in this negotiations and the conflict. And it's been suggested to convoys. People think of convoys across the, the North Atlantic in World War II, sending in destroyers and bombs and missiles. You know, I would like to start with just small teams with, with drones on these commercial ships to look for the mines, small mm. minesweeping uh, apparatus, maybe Corvettes. There are ways to mitigate those risks. There's a lot of pushback on the convoys, but it's important to have this discussion and look at ways to mitigate the risk. I think that can be done. So, you know, one of the aspects, I mean, you touched on that minesweeping. A um, couple of things come to mind. One is that the United States does not have a large deployable minesweeping capability that we can send to the Black Sea. We have some, it's in specific areas, but nothing like our European partners who almost all have significant capabilities. Um, the Black Sea is kind of a NATO lake if you take out Russia. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and all those countries have some capability. And I think it's interesting, and I'm, I, don't, I don't know how long it's going to last, that you know, one of the major aspects of the ground war, especially when you're, when you're trying to move, move the, uh, the fronts, is the thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of landmines that have been sown all through southeast uh, Ukraine. Um, They've not done that at sea. Both sides have thrown a number of mines, but nothing on the scale that, that we've seen on land, which is phenomenal. Um, that's, a, that's a line that hasn't been crossed yet. 
I, I think it looks like to me. But if somebody wants to get excited, somebody really wants to you know, throw down the gauntlet, um, suddenly overnight, the Russians put down thousands of sea mines of all types. And, and they have their inventory, again, goes back more than 100 years of mines, very, very sophisticated things, all kinds of, of uh, contraptions back to very simple things that are over 100 years old. They have tons of them. Um, you start doing that, the, the war changes, the complexion of, of the war changes, because now you're threatening all these other international partners. All that shipping is owned by other countries. All those other countries around, around the Black Sea are going to be affected. Um, this, this, suddenly, this widens out into a much bigger conflict within hours, it looks like. It could ramp up really quickly, and it's ramped up quickly in the last week. And the minesweeper is a great example. You know, the Netherlands actually set minesweepers sailing towards the Black Sea, and Italy uh, offered minesweepers to the area. Um, but but a problem, the White House came out and said, you know, this any military vessels are going to be escalatory. Uh, Turkey requested that no warships move through this area. So now there are other nations with some of these capabilities, but it's politically unviable to send one of your warships out with with the large, you know, the the commander in chief of the largest Navy right. saying it's extremely dangerous. So we either have to allow the Europeans to take initiatives themselves and support that and say, we will be there for them or doing an organization as Admiral Stravitas suggests of, um, you know, through NATO as we did before with the piracy issue. But the other critical thing here is all of the NATO nations have very few mariners left, merchant mariners for sea lift ops. And as we've learned in this war, logistics is critically important. Well, there are seafarers from other nations aboard these vessels. And 1.8 million seafarers around the world are looking at this and they're asking NATO and they're asking the allies, who's protecting us? And the answer is no one. We're not even giving them the information updates of where these mines are and the real risk. So when it comes to the next war, and NATO needs the help of the Indians, the Filipinos, the uh, Ukrainian mariners. Are they going to come to support us in the future if we don't help protect them in the Black Sea right now? I think that's a critical question that's been missed. Let's shift gears for a second. There is a significant ship fire uh, raging in the port of Newark. Um, or there was earlier this month uh, on a roll-on uh, roll-off container ship, the Grande uh, Costa Divario. Um, the fire burned for four days. And, you know, if you're uh, of the U.S. Navy mindset, your mind went immediately to the Bonham Richard. Um, I'll start with Sal and then go to John. What, why does this matter? I mean, I think we all agree that it matters, but I think it matters maybe for different reasons. Uh, Sal, what, what is the significance of this fire and why should people pay attention to either the causal factors or, or, or how we went about dealing with this? Yeah, I mean, as we speak right now, there's a fire ripping across a car carrier in the North Sea, the Fremantle Highway that, that we're seeing right now. You know, the fi the fire on on Costa, uh, Grand Costa Borio in Newark, you know, cost two Newark firefighters their lives. And we've seen a rash of shipboard fires. You mentioned Bonham Richard. I would go down to uh, the Ho Chi Minh down in Jacksonville in 2020. 
And, you know, as, as mariners, we learn how to fight fires on board ships. And, and I, I think, you know, the new, we're very comfortable with the U.S. Navy fighting fires on board ships. But when they come on land, when they dock, you know, that's where you have the intersection between the shore side and the, the uh, afloat base. And that's where we're seeing issues. And particularly when you start thinking about the dangers posed by these vessels in our ports, we talk about our infrastructure. We talk about how vital this is. You know, uh, the Grimaldi ship fire in Newark, for example, was a ship that was loaded with used vehicles heading to West Africa. And the problem was the shore-based fire departments did not have the resources, the training, the access to the material they needed to be able to properly fight a shipboard fire. And shipboard fires have become much more complex as we go on. You know, the issue we're going to see right now probably with the ship in the North Sea is an electrical vehicle fire. And EVs, electrical vehicles, we're talking about DOD shifting over to electrical vehicles. They are a beast onto themselves. I've been a volunteer firefighter for 25 years. And I can tell you right now that a, a regular car fire burns at 1,500 degrees and it takes 1,000 gallons of water to put it out. When you have an EV fire, it's 5,000 degrees and it takes 40,000 gallons of water. And when you pack this stuff onto a vessel, bumper to bumper, door to door, and shut the hatches, and you have a fire in these things, you are, you know, the, the fire drill on a commercial ship is if you can't get the fire out, you pull the CO2. If the CO2 doesn't put it out, you get to the boats because you're not going to stop that fire from burning. It's going to get out of control very quickly. The, 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 the horror of the story in Newark was here you have one of the largest ports in the United States, and it, it did not have in place the proper procedures to battle a fire on board the vessel. You literally had the Newark fire department show up and try to fight that fire, like a super, like a skyscraper fire, like a structure fire. And, you know, you go back and you look at Bonham Richard and that Jagman investigation, which to this day drives me crazy when I read it, the concept that fed fire shows up to fight a fire on a ship and did not realize that their hose couplings did not match with the ship. You know, the, just the, the, the comedy of errors that happened there is, is a problem, but, a ship fire like this could conceivably shut down a U.S. port. You know, Grimaldi, the owner of that ship in Newark, just announced they're replacing those vessels with ammonia-fueled vessels. Now, imagine we have an ammonia fuel fire on board a vessel in a port. The hazardous material incident that could be, it could conceivably close a port in the United States. And again, it goes back to port infrastructure. What are we doing to mitigate the port infrastructure? You know, in 1942, the largest ship ever lost by the U.S. Navy was a commercial vessel taken over by them. The Normandy became the Lafayette and rolled over in the dock on the east side of the uh, west side of New York. And that was a, a comedy of errors that happened there. But we learned from that. I, I always go back to this issue that we learned the, the, the loss of Normandy, loss of Lexington out in the Coral Sea. The U.S. Navy went to the FDNY went to the fire department of New York and said, we need help fighting fires. What can we do? And they brought shoreside firefighters in and damage control took a, 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 a massive 180 and, you know, U.S. Navy damage control became the premier element. But right now we're not doing that. We're not investing in the resources we need to really ensure our safeguard. Now you can sit there and be in the department of defense and sit there and say, what do I need about the port of Newark? That's not important to me. But that, that's the port from which a lot of cargo flows to sustain the army and, and military forces in Europe, in the Middle East. And when you lose a major port, that's going to have an economic influence. And it also shows our vulnerabilities, I would argue. Much like ever given shutting off the world trade for six days, if you shut down the port of Newark, 
that's going to be significant. Same thing, whether it's LA, Long Beach, Charleston, Savannah, it demonstrates our vulnerabilities. And again, it's the way we do business in the United States. Ports are local municipality jurisdictions. They're not federal. And so states run them, but there needs to be more oversight over them. And the organization that should be doing that is the Maritime Administration, but they don't. John, uh, I mean, you know, there's all this made about um, competition. I mean, is now the time to take a look at both military and civilian damage control and look at all these lessons learned? I mean, is is this the inflection point as we try to get ahead of that competition? Because if you believe what people say, this is not going to be, you know, whether it's an accidental fire or whether it's a result of, you know, enemy uh, uh, contact. I mean, we're, we're going to see more and more of this. So, you, you know, when, if not now, when? I loved your episode uh, two episodes ago with Admiral Greener, where he's talking about the firefighting capabilities of the Chinese naval ships, how they have these small fire extinguishers and they don't have the watertight bulkheads and everything else inside these ships. The, the U.S. Navy damage control teams are absolutely excellent, well-trained. The, the, the construction of Navy ships is, is bar none the best. We can survive the battle internally to the ship. But you also need, as we saw with the Bonham Richard, this external uh, capability. When the Bonham Richard came out, they brought in these police boats with these tiny water cannons trying to do that pump capacity. As Sal said, with these EV fires, pump capacity matters. And it wasn't until later they brought in the commercial tugs, but even the commercial tugs had a fraction of the pump capacity of a modern fireboat. We have over $100 billion in ships and infrastructure, important infrastructure in San Diego, and not a single modern fireboat. Right now with Austell, you see Austell stock was just suspended yesterday on the Australian Stock Exchange because we're behind on the salvage ship replacement program that they are bringing forth. You... And it's not just the, the, the equipment that we don't have the salvage tugs and don't have the uh, salvage vessels that we used to have, but the Navy said, hey, we got these tugs that have fire capabilities to help with the bottom shard. Isn't that enough versus a fireboat? No, because it's about the external training too. The fireboats in New York City, they're working with the Navy and the ammo dock with the Army, and they are going in and doing this training with Fed Fire, where the commercial tugboat operators are not. They're busy moving tugs. So we have very good internal team, but poor external team, and we're not learning the lessons. My biggest complaint with this Roro fire is that the Maritime Administration, Military Seal of Command, and the Navy is moving towards they're purchasing more of these Roros. And unlike, you know, the internal watertight um, integrity that Admiral Greenert said is so important, these are wide open decks that are very difficult to fight. And if a Roro gets damaged, um, you can't salvage. We had a Roro go over in uh, Georgia. It took years to get the equipment off of that. I don't believe these Roros, they, they move a lot and they're inexpensive, but there are serious firefighting and salvage capabilities. And if we're moving an entire battalion of army supplies over on board these ships, yes, it's efficient, but are we putting all our eggs in one basket? So the Navy's internal firefighting damage control, excellent. But once you step 
over the gunnel off of the Navy ship, I, I think we have serious problems. So, um, you know, we, we have talked quite a lot about the, the Bonham Richard fire uh, on this podcast. Um, it never ceases to boggle my mind, at least, the, uh, the endless series of mistakes that were made during and that were at least some to some of us were kind of obvious as it was playing out. And then everybody, oh, I have to wait for the investigation, the investigation, the investigation comes out and you were right. And what you thought was going on is exactly what was going on. And it was worse. Um, but, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting driving a desk and I'm watching from the wrong coast and I'm watching <laughs> when they, when they abandoned ship in the middle of the fire, it's like, no, you don't do that. Um, and then they talked about, we couldn't get back on board. Well, really? Anyway, um, that'll never end. But uh, we've so we, we've just kind of segued into something else, which is um, MARAD, the shipbuilding industry, uh, the, the Maritime Administration, MARAD. Um, John, you you recently um, have done a couple articles on um, on G Captain. Uh, you had a big one, just you know, navigating the information fog, engulfing American shipyards, um, and you know you're you're lamenting the absence of really good information about the American shipbuilding industry. You've also taken the task MARAD, the United States Maritime Administration, which is the entity that owns the vast majority of sea lift ships. So just to just to orient some some people, some folks, you know, you have the Navy, which is pretty much warships. You have military sea lift command, which is a component of the Navy, which operates a number of non-combatant ships like fleet oilers and uh, supply ships and the salvage ships, uh, should they when, whenever they come into service. And then you have Marat, which which owns ships that are also civilian crewed, but that's all the sea lift. So you have this discussion in Congress all the time. We need more sea lift, Admiral. What are we doing about sea lift? Well, a lot of that stuff is owned by the by Marad, which is part of the Department of Transportation. Um, John, why don't you take the lead on, on this? Um, what's what is your beef with Marad? <laughs> yes, well, I, I want to preface this by saying I think merit is critically important. Um, maritime administration sits right next to the FAA and the Department of Transportation. They are equivalent agencies along with the train administration and, and, the, uh, and, the, and the roadways. Um, but the FAA has 44,000 people. Uh, which is roughly the same size as the entire U.S. Coast Guard. Merit has 800. Only 800 people, and Marad's not is in charge of shipbuilding. It's also in charge of our ports. When you see the port congestion, that's a Marad problem. The inland waterways is a Marad problem. The U.S. Merchant Marine is under Marad, and Marad has all of these laws that were put into place in World War II that are still on the books. Marad has its own uh, admirals. There's a three-star Marad admiral. There are two stars and one-star Marad admirals. They're never brought into the Pentagon and invited in this conversation. Um, I've yet to find one person in the entire Pentagon who is has a commercial merchant marine captain's license like myself and has experience on board the commercial vessels that are critical for our sea lift. The only uh, war college that invites uh, uh, merchant mariners is the Naval War College and there are only two seats for them. So the Navy does great working jointly, but uh, with, with other allied nations, with other departments, but Marad's kind of left off to the side. And where it becomes critical with shipbuilding is you have all of this interest and money being poured into the Navy and you have senators 
uh, coming up, uh, like Senator Wicker just did, saying we need to increase the Navy shipbuilding budget. But underneath the, the Navy is a commercial entity. Austell is a public company on the Australian Stock Exchange. HII is a public company on the US Stock Exchange. These companies have the financial engineering tools in order to uh, get loans for expansion, workforce development, and so forth. But their side, they're in financial crisis right now. Uh, HII is only an $8 billion market cap company, that's its total valuation, versus Boeing, which is $80 billion, and um, Raytheon, which is over $120 billion. So the, the, the bonds, you know, when HII wants to expand, it has to issue bonds and then it has to go to the junk bond market. Now, this is not the Navy's responsibility, but this is some things that Congress can do to incentivize Wall Street in order to move their investment from, from China and overseas shipyards back into the U.S. shipyards and really focus on what are some of these financial tools and congressional tools that we can use in order to boost uh, shipbuilding. The problem is the Navy is a military organization. The Navy is not in charge of subsidizing shipyards. They're in charge of building shipyards. But Navy shipbuilding arm NAVC has 86,000 people and MARAD only has 800 people. So as we push more money into the Navy side and NAVC and programs, you have this bottleneck of the commercial elements, the connections to Wall Street, the connections to the port, the connections to the workforce are all handled by MARAD. And because it's so tiny and does not get that military support, a lot of balls are being dropped dropped and this connection to our vast Wall Street and economical resources are being lost. So pouring money into into Navy project, doubling the Navy shipbuilding budget would be great, but we also need to engage the private sector. And to do that, we need to engage uh, the people. We need journalists. And uh, in my article, I said, you, you guys are two of the only journalists out there that are really focusing on the shipyards and exposing, you know, what's the issue here? Sal, when, 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 when you, we've been talking about, you know, he just mentioned Austell. Um, Austell is a, Austell USA in Mobile, Alabama, which is really on the move, expanding in a great way. Uh, I mean, a great as in big way in, in multiple directions. Um, that shipyard is a subs U.S. subsidiary of an Australian company, Austell. And that is in play right now, uh, financially. So the ownership is, a, is, a, is up for sale, one way or another. At least if you, if you read enough stories, you hear enough stories, uh, what's going on. People, most eyes are looking at Korean ownership. Um, there are three major Korean shipbuilders. Korea is the largest shipbuilder uh, in Japan outside of China. Um, and a lot of people look at that as a good thing. Um, a lot of people are worried about it. Foreign ownership, um, Korean ownership, you start buying into a lot of um, security issues uh, come into play. Um, what do you, what's your assessment of, uh, and, the, and the potential impact of a sale of Austell? Well, you know, the movement to Austell is, is not surprising. If you look around the world, I mean, since 2009, the number of shipyards around the world have decreased 40%. Uh, we've seen consolidation. That's the name of the game in, in commercial shipping. We've seen consolidation. And right now, yeah, you're right. China 
Korea, Japan are the big builders. 94% of all the world ships are built there. You know, that's, you know, within a, you draw your 1000 mile circle around Okinawa and that's 94%, 95 if you throw the Philippines in. Uh, that's where everything is done. And one of the things that we have been talking about and seeing consistently here is, is shipbuilding is slowing down. We're not seeing a lot of ships being built. We had this huge influx of vessels for the container market being built. But we're seeing a slowdown. That has a lot to do with regulations, international regulations. The IMO, the International Maritime Organization, you know, back in 2010, started talking about this this whole provision. And then we're we're at what we call IMO 2050, which initially set an idea that we're going to cut down commercial ship emissions 50 percent. And now the most latest one talks about maybe we're going to go to 100 percent by 2050. And that has put a lot of commercial shipbuilders on pause because no one wants to build a ship and find out that the ship I just built is going to be out of service in 10 years because of environmental regulations. You would not buy a car knowing that that car in a year or two is going to be illegal to drive on the road. And, and that has really impacted the commercial side. And so a lot of commercial firms diversify. And if you look at Japan, China, Korea, where you're building warships right next door to them in the, you know, in the same shipyard in the dry dock right next door is commercial vessels. And so this is something that I think the U.S. has failed to learn is, is, is the versatility and the utility of being able to build both commercial and military side by side. We got out of that business. We intentionally got out of that business. We did everything we could to get out of that business. We sent it overseas. And, and now we're, we're kind of paying for that with very high shipping costs. And now we're seeing the potential here for a shipyard like Austell to be bought by Daewoo or Samsung or whatever, which one of the big Korean companies want to come in. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing at all because I, I think uh, Korean shipyards would come in with a much different attitude the way customers are today. Today, your sole customer in a U.S. shipyard is the U.S. Navy. You can't say no to them. You can't tell them. Koreans will tell no to you. They will tell you we're not changing the ship order. We are building the ship the way it is, and that's the way it's going to be. So I think it's really important that the commercial side is understood by the by the military side, but it's not. And, and I think that's that's a, a huge problem we have. And we see these shipyards. When we build a commercial ship in the United States, it's a work of art. It's not a ship because it's a one-off. It's, it's a one-of-a-kind ship. Whereas in Korea, Japan, and China, they're they're mass producing them, and you can see them being built for a lot cheaper for a lot of reasons too. It's not just cost; it it is it is subsidies. It is the banking issue that John talks about. It's the finance issue. It's the ability to invest in this. There, there's a lot of issues that we lose on lose out on, and you know, go back to what John was talking about with Marriott. Marriott hasn't issued an annual report since 2013. They haven't done a study on shipyards in I don't know how long. The one thing Marriott should be doing for the United States is producing bookloads of reports and looking at this, and they're not doing that. You know, I would love to see the cost analysis to build a Burke-class destroyer in the United States right up alongside a Japanese version and a Korean version. What does that look like? You know, where, where's the where's the cost difference? Because they're similar vessels, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where, where's that difference? And how can we do better? Because you have right now congressmen talking about maybe we should let Japan and Korea build our warships. And I got to tell you, as a historian, that's that's Roman Empire stuff. That's once you start, you know, feeding out your your industrial base to other countries, then, you know, that's the beginning of the end right there for you. I, I guess we tried to bridge these ideas, though, by buying a mature design. Um, from Fink and Terry with the uh, with the frigate, uh, and then we spent you know a number of years sort of unwinding all of the things that the Italians had perfected 
in order to push it through our model of, uh, of perfection, um, adding cost and time in which this, uh, you know, the frigate would get to the, to the fleet. So uh, all of this just, I mean, you know, Chris is sending me notes, you know, here, j jump in and, and I, I am so, this is why I'm so interested to have you guys on here because, I mean, I think that, you know, as a navalist, we tend to, or most navalists tend to kind of track the budget and track the fleet. And we miss some of the, the you know, the, the forest for the trees and some of these, these big issues here. Um, you, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's for logistics or whether it's for warship purposes, I, I do think we need to figure out a way to harness at least lessons learned to your point, Sal, right? If it's not, you know, we don't want to, to outsource the building of our warships, but I mean, to pretend that we do it um, better than anybody else, or we, or our mm -hmm. way is the only way, uh, just doesn't seem to be uh, pr productive. Um, so whether it's through the hostile, or excuse me, through the AUKUS lessons learned, or others, there's got to be a better way to do this. Yeah, and and I'll go back and just you know, if you want to look at a model right now that's being worked in the United States, John and I have talked about this a lot. It is the Marad model that's building the national. Uh, 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 security multi-mission vessels. These are the five uh, ships for the state maritime academies. This was a contract that Marad's not didn't design the vessels. They put the specifications out. This is what we want the vessel to look like. They contracted with Tote Marine. Tote Marine in turn contracted with Philly a Shipyard. And you you actually have a ship being built in the United States right now, five of them, that are coming out fairly much on time and you know on budget. And granted, it, it's not a Burke class destroyer. I understand it's different, but it, it is a commercial design that's being built. And, you know, you, we talk about icebreakers in the United States. You know, John and I have talked about this too. Let's do a reverse AUKUS, but let's do it with the Finns. And let's let's get an icebreaker built by the Finns, you know, and then we can take that technology in conjunction with the Finnish shipyards, bring it to the United States, get Bollinger up on speed with that or, or whoever's going to be building these things. And then we can build them here. I, I think there, there are things we can do that get us across that bridge because ships are not built the same way they were 20 years, 50 years, 100 years ago. And, and a lot of components are brought overseas. And I think AUKUS gives you a model. You can kind of follow that on the commercial side. If you look at commercial ships being built, this is what they do. They modular build them all over the place. And if you go to Pusan and, and see what they do there, if you go to uh, Japan or, or China, you'll see that they, 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 they use all these assets together. And we've we've done this with you know Toyota Motor Company didn't uh, you know they they built factories in the U.S. and they started that corporate structure you know bringing in Japanese labor to start that and then training Americans. The problem with that is they alienated the the American auto company. We need to bring in those models and spare lands like the excellent Alabama shipyard or you have Denton's which is a great shipyard that have extra land bring in the 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 Korean and Japanese model and do it in partnership where HII or Austal also is partners with that and brings in part of the profits. What the Navy is really good at above all else is working jointly with allies, with armies, with the Marine Corps. That's the 
uh, Navy superpower. What I'm asking the Navy is to take that superpower and apply it to MARAD, apply it to the Korean shipyards, apply it to our shipbuilding partners, because the Navy can't, fi can't fix this alone. It needs MARAD to, to establish these commercial entities. It's just impossible. There are ethics violations of the Navy directly subsidizing. So, But they can work jointly with organizations like MARAD and Congress to push our partners forward. And, and Congress needs to back that up, because if you look at things like the tanker security program that just got passed, nine ships brought into the tanker security program, we're basically reflagging foreign vessels into the U.S. fleet, which is a great stopgap measure, but it does nothing for the shipbuilding industry base, our ship repair base. And, and that's the problem is is we're, we're, we're kind of doing a Band-Aid fix on some elements of the commercial side without investing in that infrastructure side. And that rolls over into the U.S. Navy, why there's not repair facilities available, why do we have subs that are 37% need major repairs, and we, we see that a large component of the U.S. Navy cannot be fixed because we don't have that infrastructure that we would usually have for commercial side. Well, guys, all these topics, um, this this you know goes right to the heart. Um, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, really, this is this is stuff. Again, I don't think that people pay enough attention to, and uh, it gets lost in rhetoric. It gets lost just in the overall um, viewpoint of you know, it's just this is not what people want to talk about first. They want to talk about aircraft carriers and submarines and numbers of ships, but getting behind those numbers, getting behind the real issues, is uh, beyond a lot of the discussion. And um, I hope we can we can keep this up. Um, folks, that is uh, all our time we've got today. We've been talking to Sal Macagliano. He is the he produces the weekly What the Ship videos on YouTube, and John Conrad. He runs the excellent G Captain website, dealing with maritime issues across the globe. Both of these uh, gentlemen do, and uh, Sal and John. Again, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Thank you for having us, and thank you for your continued focus on these shipyard issues. It's really important. Thanks, guys. Okay, before we go, we want to turn, uh, just have a brief discussion on a letter that uh, Republicans in Congress sent to President Biden on July 26th, and it uh, particularly cites the, uh, the AUKUS agreement, the Australia-United Kingdom-United States agreement, um, primarily about submarines and submarine technology, uh, the goal of which is to wind up providing Australia with nuclear-powered attack submarines, including several former American U.S. Navy Virginia-class submarines. Um, the Republicans are taking here are taking issue with that. And they're really uh, talking about the industrial base, the submarine industrial base, and they want an increase in, so in the submarine industrial base to support buying at least two and a half Virginia-class attack submarines per year. Right now, the Navy is trying to do two, um, sometimes one, but mostly two. And, and that's sort of the struggle, plus the Columbia-class ballistic missile submarines, which are now already in production. Um, Chris, what do you make from this letter? What do you think is going on here? So I, I guess in the macro, I, I think, I mean, the Republicans in the, in the White House and Democrats in Congress, I think they're all in violent agreement that we need more submarines in the Indo-PACOM AOR. What it appears to me in, I guess, the micro and in this case is that Senator Wicker, who is the 
um, you know, ranking member on the SASC, uh, he wants to force either his uh, colleagues on the SASC and in the Senate, but particularly the White House, to make a bigger commitment to spending more on U.S. Uh, submarine force structure and U.S. submarine uh, industrial base support before they sign off on the AUKUS agreement. Um, there's a July 21st Politico article written by your former colleague, Joe Gould, who's now at Politico. Um, and Joe talks about how Wicker and others uh, were holding up um, the AUKUS uh, nuclear submarine technology transfer um, and that the reason given was um, because they wanted more investment. And, you know, there are, um, you know, one thing about the letter that you and I talked about before we came on air is that these letters are typically bipartisan, right? I mean, especially on submarine issues. The fact that it's signed all by Republicans makes you scratch your head. Um, but then you look at um, you, you look at the Politico article and you see that it's, you know, it's Wicker, it's Susan Collins, it's others on the um, Senate Appropriations Committee and on the Senate Armed Services Committee that are really, um, you know, decrying the fact that uh, we only have 49 submarines and that uh, we need to get to 66. So my guess is, is that when all is said and done, they'll come to some sort of resolution, whether that's adding some additional money in uh, a number of the supplementals that may get passed um, before uh, 23 ends, um, or they may look to add something in 24. But but for right now, you definitely see the Republicans uh, taking this opportunity to really hold up AUKUS and uh, beat on the White House for a larger submarine commitment. I, I agree with that. But you know, this letter, the, the letter itself, it, it's not a bad letter. It's not extreme. It doesn't talk about holding up anything. In the letter, um, makes no reference to to that. Um, it's a pretty balanced letter. I don't understand at all why it had to be signed by twenty five Republicans and not a single Democrat. I can think of a, quite a number of Democrats who would sign this thing would not have a problem with this letter. Um, I don't know. You know, I think I think it's a mistake to try to play this as a partisan issue and not take the opportunity to make it a bipartisan issue, which I think it is. I know it is. And, you know, this is just we have enough partisanship in Congress where any anytime we can get agreement, uh, I'm 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 all for that sort of thing. And, uh, and just when, when you take something that does have wide bipartisan support in both uh, houses, House and Senate, um, you should take that opportunity. And I think it's a mistake to make it make it partisan. It also doesn't talk about it's sort of interesting that it just talks about attack submarines, which is fine. And you know, of course, the U.S. Navy for years was trying to get back to two Virginia-class submarines uh, per year, and they did some years ago. But the industrial base still hasn't managed to increase its production of the supply side of what's needed to build a submarine um, to meet that demand, to meet two per year. And now we're really doing, uh, in, in many years, three per year, which is not in this letter, the Columbia class ballistic missile submarine. And that's going to continue for the next decade. There's no mention in here for that. That to me would bolster the case for more of a supplemental, more, more effort into the industrial base. It is tough. It doesn't talk about where are the key factors. Even, I mean, just a, just a passing mention of things like, you know, large steel casings or specialized steel welding or reactor production support. You could have just said that, that, you know, this is, these are key elements. It has nothing to do with who's building the submarine, General Dynamics, Newport News, 
but this is this is what we're really talking about. That's what's holding things back in many, many cases, especially in the industrial base. So there's no mention about that. I think this my sense is that this is a this is a good issue. There's a lot to talk about here. There's I think there's going to be a lot of agreement from a lot of people. And this is this should not be a Republican issue and should not be seen as that. I think it cheapens the issue to do that. So I'm, I'm disappointed in it for that. I'm this, you know, I'm giving you my shocked face uh, on camera, here, Chris. <laughs> that uh, there's politics associated with national security. Oh no, I can't <laughs> believe it. I am shocked, and we're all shocked. Exactly. Come on, I'm shocked. You're shocked. Everybody listening is shocked. All right. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishers Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.